Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Camel. And with me, Rory Stewart. And unusually, in recent weeks, we're going to start domestic because we're recording this shortly before King Charles arrives at Parliament to deliver the King's speech. Uh, We should talk a little bit about the AI summit that we talked Mm -hmm. about last week. And then obviously, again, I think we have to talk about the Middle East. And both of us want to talk about the elections in Argentina, which are both important, but also fascinating. Very exciting. For the way that they're going. And and I think we said before that next year is going to be the biggest two billion people are going to vote extraordinary in general so elections. two-thirds of all citizens in democratic countries will vote next year and this is the biggest year on record since records began in the 1960s there's never been a democratic fest that like next year including us including america including europe european elections so it's going to be astonishing and so that next year will be the big restless politics democratic election year but argentina is this year Rest is politics, democratic elections. Sorry, it's, it's almost get, tirade. It's almost tirade. Anyway, so King's speech. Did you have any help well, in writing it? Your friend, the king. Well, <laughs> <laughs> or should we explain that so the king yeah, doesn't exactly. write so, the king's speech? Yeah. So the, the king's main thing that he was doing last week was a trip to Kenya, yeah. which was very interesting. Where he was navigating his way through Britain's colonial legacy, particularly the Mau Mau conflict, which was. Kenyan independence movements where British troops were involved in atrocities. He went out of his way to give medals to Kenyans who had been poorly treated by the British during the Second World War, hadn't been recognized. He met families of people whose relatives had been executed for participating in the Mau Mau and did a number of apologies on behalf of the British government. What, which, do, you, what, do, you, what do you think people made of that? Because it, it did get a fair amount of coverage, but it wasn't like huge in the way that I thought it might have been. I mean, it's a very interesting. I mean, it, I think, implies how much Britain is changing. I think 15, 20 years ago, the king apologising for British imperial atrocities would have been huge news and possibly bits of the right-wing press would have been outraged and, you know, what's the king doing? That's what, that's what surprised me, because it, it sort of played, we're going to talk about the King's Speech, where there's a lot of sort of culture warrior stuff going on, and it could easily have been picked up as a sort of woke, mm. you know, why are we apologising for our past, teaching of history, all that stuff that the right yeah. tend to go with. But it just got a, it was kind of number three, number four on the news, it didn't get much traction in the yeah. papers. And I think he did it quite, I mean, obviously I'm a fan of his, but I, I think p- partly it was done quite thoughtfully. So the meetings with the Mau Mau families were done privately in the residence. Mm-hmm. And then some of the families gave interviews after saying that he'd been compassionate and respectful, but it wasn't a big sort of public media thing. And I think he got the language right. And I think, oddly, if you do apologize relatively straightforwardly, it's remarkable what you can, um, mm. how accepting people can be. Now, you're, you today, Roy, are wearing a very, very smart suit, which did not come cheap. I can, I can spot that. But I was very struck by the fact that Charles was wearing this white suit at one point, which I couldn't carry that off. Do you think you can? No, carry No, I don't think suit? I can carry it. I've, really? I've tried. When I was younger, I tried, but I, I, can't, I can't do it. No. <laughs> no. So we, I presume, will he be wearing the same clothes we'll know by the time the podcast comes out but will he be wearing exactly the same clothes for the king's speech as he did when he read the queen's speech on 
the Queen's behalf last year. Yes, I think it will be. I, although, you're right, we need some real royal heraldry experts. There'll probably be some subtle differences. There'll presumably be a difference in the crown and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So just very quickly for international listeners, the King's speech is the government announcing its programme of legislation going forward. And traditionally, because it's His Majesty's government, they do so by giving the speech to the monarch, previously the Queen, now the King, to read out. Tell us a little bit. I mean, do you remember your first Queen's speech? I do, vividly. Go on, tell us a little bit about well, that. Well, because, the, I mean, it is amazing how people, you will hear people say, so like, for example, today when they talk about, you know, new oil and gas uh, drilling rights. Now, I think given King Charles' record in the environment, we can assume he's not going to be very happy about that, but he won't reveal that. And yet people will say, why is he doing that when he so clearly doesn't believe in it? Because there are still a minority, I hope, of people who think that the king writes the king's speech. The government writes the king's speech. I must confess, one of the most thrilling, <laughs> this is going to sound terrible, one of the most thrilling moments of my life was watching the queen in 1997 talk about a national health service for the many, not the few. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. We did get pulled back once or twice on... Because you you, you were inserting into it some of your great straplights. Yeah, the there, yeah, there was, yeah. A, there was yeah. an element of... You, obviously, the, you, you, the, the Queen, the King, now the King, they're not meant to be in any way political. And that is difficult sometimes because the government strategy can be the same as a, as a political strategy. I suspect we will see quite a lot of politics in this King's speech. In fact, the, the government is briefing that it is essentially a political exercise. But there'll be a little bit of pushback from the palace if they yeah, try absolutely. to get them to say oh, the, the long-term economic plan is working or, or get Brexit done. Or, they, 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 they would push back, yeah. yeah. And, and there, were, there were some pushbacks. but I mean, the, So it sort of goes back and forwards. I'd imagine they'll have had a draft a few months ago which would have been very, very outline. And then the language gets more and more refined and eventually... You know, but it, I would say one or two phrases a year. They probably said, mm, "I'm not so sure and, about and, this." And this is very important, obviously, because it's laying out the government's legislative program. But it's probably to put it in context, one of three or four really important events a year, along with Budget. conference speeches, budgets. Yeah, yeah. And the press and newspapers will really orient themselves around these three or four big events a year. Yeah, although I sus my sense already is that the media is starting to focus much more on Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement coming up in a couple of weeks' time as opposed to this, which which does feel very fag-end. It's given an example of a government at the beginning of its term. What sort of oh, things are you getting? Doing, well, Bank of England, right. uh, minimum wage, Scottish Parliament, Sure Start, I think. Right. And, and I remember as an MP for these things, so um, the, the tradition is that these King speaks in the House of Lords, which is down the corridor on the other side of the lobby from the House of Commons. So we all traipsed. Well, first of all, you have to be summoned by Black right. Rod. Black, Black Rod. Rod comes and smacks his rod on the door. That's and right. And, and then we all march out together through Central Lobby. Horrible small talk all the way. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> Chatting to your colleagues from other parties. And then you find yourself standing at a sort of bar, like an altar rail, keeping you out of the House of Lords. Well, you cram and you listen, listen to the speech. And... And then you traipse back again in the other direction. And then the House of Commons, the parliamentarians, make speeches on the King's speech. But I guess my memory of it, having done it, I suppose, nine times, is exactly that sense. Is this going to be a great barnstorming speech, which is really going to appeal to the party, which I guess is, is what you would have felt in 97, which is a lot of your new MPs there, mm -hmm. new election, hearing these words, minimum wage, big mm. thing, Queen says it. Mm. 
Um, and Rishi, of course, is going to be looking to try, if he can, to craft the narrative of Action Man and show that he's being dynamic. Let's just whip through the King's speech a little bit and talk about what's in it, what is it in it. As far as we can tell, he's going to announce his tobacco changes, which will mean that anyone who is currently 14 or younger in Britain will never be able to buy tobacco. And probably Labour will support that. I suspect that. I think that's already sort of bought in that that, that, that will go through. Uh, I mean, they are, they are putting crime and sentencing right at the heart of this. And my big worry about the whole thing is that, is that I, I sense Suella Braverman's influence all over it. Again, coming up with the idea of longer sentences, more people going to jail at a time when they're actually emptying the jails early or letting people out early because the jails are already yeah. so full. And, and this is something where you're, you're completely right. And it's very, very worrying. Um, so on the one hand, there's the stuff that we were congratulating Alex Chalk, the Secretary of State Justice, about last week, which is a presumption against these short sentences, sentences under 12 months. But at the same time, they're talking about mandatory prison sentences for repeat shoplifters, burglars, thieves. Now, mandatory is a big problem because that really fills the jails. It gives the judges no discretion at all. And they're also saying that rapists will have to serve twice the length of prison sentences they currently serve, so no release at halfway time. And those longer sentences really fill the prisons. There are other problems actually in the prison system at the moment, including remand prisoners, people waiting to go to court being held in huge numbers. But this will be a big, big question for Labour because on the one hand, Labour doesn't want to show weakness on crime and justice, so they don't want to suggest that they're being soft on rapists, shoplifters, burglars. On the other hand, Keir Starmer in particular will be very conscious as somebody whose professional life has been spent around criminal justice, that the prisons are mm. unbelievably full and there's absolutely no way, I think, that we're going to be able to accommodate all these people. I mean, people. I, th I think their real problem with this King speech is, that, and, and they're, they're actually, they're stupid enough to be briefing this, that it's not really a legislative program, it's a set of political traps for Labour. So for example, you've, you mentioned in relation to the, to the crime stuff, likewise on oil and gas drilling that we mentioned, it's about trying to sort of separate them out. And they're already getting into a muddle. So for example, you've had Rishi Sunak saying that the measures on oil and gas are going to lower the cost of energy without explaining why. You then have Claire Coutinho, who's the minister responsible, literally hours apart from Sunak saying, no, it won't. And I, th I do think, I'm, I mentioned the, the, the autumn statement of Jeremy Hunt. I think it'd be very odd if there is no connection between a government program and the cost of living crisis, given that we're coming up to that, that next big, big moment. So I just, I just feel that we're seeing a government that is focused on the next election, Absolutely everything is about in that context of, as it were, us against Labour. And I just think, I, I'm not sure the public will buy this in terms of, a. I think that once you start to discuss everything in the context of the next election, you have a sense, I think, of a government that's losing its way. A few other geeky things going on in it, which I think are interesting. One of them is trying to deal with leaseholds. Mm -hmm. So in, in Britain, as you know, there are these extraordinary setups where landowners can issue 99-year leases, where effectively they can sell you the house almost for the full price of the house, and then Absolutely. in 99 years, take it back in. Yeah. So there's an attempt to address that. Hasn't gone as far as people wanted, and a classic example, I don't know what the backstory is there, but a classic example of a typical government program where there's huge ambitions, we're going to reform the whole system, and then the whole thing turns out to be slightly mm. half-hearted because it's mm. not addressing flats and various other things. Um, there's a bill on technology 
which is the government demanding that they are informed in advance of any advanced security features put on phones, which is already causing big trouble. So you've got Apple saying that they're going to stop FaceTime services in the United Kingdom rather than comply. So an interesting standoff between big tech and the government in terms of how far you can go. Um, football. Mm-hmm. football I'd, I'd like to hear, hear a little bit what you think about this. One, one of my, um, probably going to ruin the rest of her career, one of my favourite Tories, Tracy Crouch. I actually, am, I'm a supporter of the football regulator. I know a lot of people in football are not. Tell us what it'll do. Essentially, it will, it will put somebody outside the industry, above the industry, able to kind of set direction and regulate its working so that, for example, I'm imagining that the, the whole thing about fit and proper person test, which is I don't think has ever, ever been applied. And let's be honest, we've got some fairly unfit and improper person person in charge clubs. of football yeah. clubs. Yeah. Um, that they would perhaps be, have a greater say in that. So I think, look, Tracy Crouch is taken seriously in the football world. And, and I think that's another one that might well might well go through. So listen, it won't all be terrible, but in terms of what they are trying to project, I think it is very much on this culture war, Braverman agenda. And some of the stuff that they were briefing out at the weekend was horrific. Um, just before we get on Braverman, because yeah. I know you want to do a lot on Braverman, but just th- three more things they're doing. So one of them, they're doing drip pricing in airports, mm-hmm. um, which is an interesting example of something I often felt in politics, which is that you can be very caught up in the sort of big issues, you know, what are we doing about inflation or taxation? But there are often things that really irritate voters in my experience. You know, in my days, it was uh, cold calling. It mm-hmm. was incentivizing traffic wardens. These kind of really irritate people. And in this case, it's um, airlines hiding the costs of extra charges for luggage and sort of thing. So I, I do sometimes think that there's a role for government, doesn't matter what government, in addressing some of those smaller consumer-facing things. Did, did you do some of those things? And did you find they were popular and they were... Oh, Lord, what sort of things did we do like that? I mean, one thing I was going to talk about that doesn't require legislation. So, for example, and you're absolutely right, I do want to talk about Bravin because she's making my blood boil at the moment, which I know is what she wants to do, and I should try to resist the blood boiling. But, for example, there she is saying that we're going to find charities who give tents out to homeless people, which I just think for us as a country in 2023 to have a home secretary who says that. And I was thinking about, for example, what we did in the Rough Sleeping, mm-hmm. Rough Sleepers Initiative. And there's a wonderful quote from Michael Barber, who mm-hmm. you, know, you and I both know and like, and who ran the, the delivery unit for Tony Blair, said that sometimes government is not about legislation. It's about identifying a problem and then putting in the resources and the team and the strategy to address it. And we should maybe put in the the newsletter the graph that showed the steady decline of rough sleeping Mm. under the Labour Mm. government. And she is basically saying that these tents are a cause rather than a symptom. And it's just performative cruelty for me. It's performative cruelty for her then to say this is a lifestyle choice for people who are living on the streets, and she says it's a lifestyle choice. And interestingly, Rishi Sunak was being interviewed yesterday. He was asked whether he agreed with that as a description. And there's a game going on here because we've now had the hurricane of immigration. We've had the hate marches, which we'll talk about in relation to the Middle East, where she's saying that anybody goes on these marches, it's a hate march. And we've now got this thing about the lifestyle choice of tents. Rishi Sunak has kind of distanced himself from those, and yet gives her the license to go and do all this stuff. Or may may not give her the license. I mean, I think it may be, we've discussed this a lot in the past, because I think 
you know, six, nine months ago, you were saying that he should fire her as Home Secretary, and maybe he should have done. But I think to some extent, once he's decided not to do that, and she represents well, like, a very popular part of the Tory right, how does, how does he stop her? So, so there's a fabulous Because, because in the end, you can only control your cabinet ministers by firing them. I mean, if they, you can't stop your Home Secretary going out saying nonsense unless you're prepared to fire her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she may just think that she's yeah. got absolute license. There's a wonderful piece in last week's New European by Ma- Matthew Dancona. He's actually making the case that he thinks Sunak's as bad as Johnson and Trust for different reasons. He gives him some credit for some things, but he's got this line though: "I do not believe Sunak buys the Braverman spiel for a second, but he's happy to exploit it for electoral purposes to spark flints close to the most dangerous cultural tinder." And I think another one that maybe we can talk about in this context, rather than when we get on to the talk about the Middle East, this thing about the march. Uh, the, the, the the pro-Palestinian march at the weekend. And she'd suggested earlier, didn't she, that she was considering arresting anybody who showed a Palestinian flag? Mm. That mm. was her too, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 I, look, there's, there's been a march. You can argue, there's a brilliant speech, by the way, for German speakers of, of Habeck, the vice-chancellor. Which which has been all over Twitter, been has shared. It? Yeah, yeah, been incredibly popular. Yeah. With subtitles? With or? subtitles, Okay, yes. okay. Yeah. Well, people yeah. should look at yeah. that because yeah. it's a very, it's a really... For, as a piece to camera, it's incredibly powerful. Essentially, he's saying, he's, he's trying to do what we've been doing and what Barack Obama was trying to do in, in the mm. clip that we should also share, where he's sort of trying to give the two sides. But he's also, he's really sort of saying, we, we mustn't fall into the trap of feeding the hate on either side. And I'm afraid, I think Suella Braverman is deliberately doing that. So let, let's just stop on her for a second. I mean, she is an extraordinary mystery. I think, as I've said before, she... She's a Buddhist. Mm-hmm. People who work with her say that she's extremely amiable and nice. She's not, you know, many of these conservative cabinets have been accused of bullying. She's not particularly accused of that. She's meant to be sort of in person quite pleasant. She was an Erasmus scholar. So mm-hmm. she studied in Europe. She um, set up the Africa Justice Initiative with Cherie Blair, where she was going around doing rule of law and stuff in Africa. And so suddenly this quite mild-mannered, European-educated, Africa Justice Buddhist is saying all these things mm. and sort of portraying herself as some sort of extraordinary kind of Cruella de Vil figure. Mm. I've never seen anyone in politics where there's a, such a weird disconnect between the sort of mild private character and this incredibly kind of brutal public exterior. And, and I do find it brutal. I think just to talk about the, these people in tents, like, you know, a lifestyle choice. I mean, has she ever actually got to talk to any people who live in tents? And by the way, I'm really angry that there's no Mental Health Act. That was promised in the... 2019 manifesto yet again they've, has, has they've not come through side. saida our friend saida who we interviewed on leading recently i mean she has been out saying really harsh stuff about uh, about braverman uh, she calls her an arsonist i think she thinks she's an she's, she's at heart an islamophobe and of course i think we you, we're both white a lot of our most of our listeners are probably white we've grown up imagining that all racists are likely to be white. But I'm afraid I think Braverman is is somebody who, because she's not white, she's able to be very extreme. And yet, un- people find it hard to call that out because she herself is not white. But I see her as an extremist, I'm afraid. Just, just on rough sleeping, a um, couple of things. One of them is, yes, Labour did a very good job. Um, secondly, Andy Burnham did an amazing job. I mean, I was very struck when I was uh, trying to run to be mayor of London that Sadiq Khan was really struggling to get rough sleeping under control in London and blaming all sorts of people. And Andy Burnham in Manchester got to grips with it very, very quickly with very similar levers 
to play with. Most exciting, though, for me is what's happened in Canada, which is um, Canada, they did an experiment where they gave £4,400 of basically unconditional cash to rough sleepers. So really radical. Give directly. Give directly. (laughs) And it was completely transformatory. They didn't spend it on drugs and alcohol. Almost all of them got into accommodation, began earning enough money to start supporting friends and family, and in quite a quick period of time, began saving the government money. Yeah, well, that's the whole point about a preventive approach to these things. So, so, so I'd like to encourage when you speak to Kira again on your your wanders through your neighbourhood, cash to rough sleepers. Take courage, very radical, but the Mm. evidence from Canada is absolutely compelling that instead of, and there are two ways of doing it. There are brilliant programs that I've seen in the Midlands where you can provide incredible wraparound 24-7 support, mm-hmm. help people into housing, mentor them, sit with them. But that's very, very expensive and you end up spending an incredible amount of money, 40,000, 50,000 pounds per person on the mentoring and the wraparound mm-hmm. support. The Canada approach is much more radical, costs a tenth as much and is having astonishing results. Just finally on, on the, the, the rough sleepers, what the, the principles that we put at the heart of it. One was this focus, as you say, on trying to rehabilitate, give people a a sense of their own future. The second big thing was was mental health support. And I think if if Suella Braverman actually did go around and talk to some of the people sleeping in tents on the streets being helped by these charities, then I think she'd discover that mental health, mental illness is a big, big, big part of this. So one of the other things they found in Canada, again, I keep pushing direct cash as the answer. Yeah is that actually when you give direct cash to people, you free them up and you reveal much more what specialist support they can receive. So actually, it turns out that not everybody requires the same support as you can imagine. Mm. And the great thing about the cash is it gets people into accommodation, sorts out their finances. And at that point, it becomes much easier then for people to identify you need a bit of extra mental health support, you need a bit of education support, etc. But starting with the cash, and, and that actually is, is going to be quite controversial for some of the charities. Absolutely. Because many of them will hear this and say, you've got to be kidding. We know these people, if we give them £4,400 of cash, they're going to abuse it. It's not true. The evidence from Canada is very compelling. So I would encourage people to take risks. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, should we briefly talk about AI and the summit? Very good. Qu- quickly on that, I mean, we, I think almost about to go into our break, but I think it was very striking how many of the great AI stars the world turned up. They're very impressive. They're very busy people. They live at the other end of the world. Most of them live on the West Coast of the United States. My friend James Monica, who I hope we're going to be able to interview, who's um, Google's great head of AI, came in. Obviously, all these other people we've been interviewing, Mustafa Suleiman was there, Reid Hoffman was there. It, it was a big event. It was Mir- Miriam Clegg's husband was there. Miriam Clegg's husband was there, who hopefully we are going to interview. <laughs> when we day he's succeed, promised. To succeed in getting. Um, no, so I, I think it was a, a significant event and the government will be, will be happy with it. Um, I think the eccentric thing around the edge of it um, is what you felt in communications terms about watching Rishi Sunak interview Elon Musk. Mm. Well, I spoke to a couple of people who were there who said they found that part of it utterly toe-curling. One of them actually said he couldn't bear to stay in the room while it was going on. There's a passage in my book, which is called... But what can I do? That one, where I talk about Musk as an anarcho-capitalist, and it's Francois Hollande, who we also talked to on leading. He said that he worried that what was happening here was that these anarcho-capitalists were not just having great influence on the world, but actually they were becoming more powerful than politicians. And you did have the sense there if you looked at the two, not just their physicality, because Musk is huge and yep. Rishi Sunak yep. is quite small, but just in terms of the power dynamic, 
you felt like Sunak was rather an excited and, interviewer. And if you if you were if you were giving advice to a prime minister, would you generally say probably best not to interview someone? Because no, I still think it was a good thing to do. I do think it was a good thing to do, and and because Musk is a very very interesting character. Um, Fiona's actually been reading. And you, you don't think you'd want to flip it around and maybe have them both interviewed by a third person? Possibly, possibly. I think that, may, but but I think Sunak felt that was his way of imposing himself on the event. Right. I just think he came over as a little bit too excited yeah. to be in the presence of. Elon so so Musk. you don't you don't think the format's wrong? You think somebody? You, you think I don't think the format's you, you, wrong. You wouldn't have advised Tony Blair not to do that or, no, or kiss someone. I thought I thought, I thought it was yeah. fine, but I just think that the dynamic between them was odd, and I also think that. The, 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 we said this last week before it happened that the risk with somebody like Musk is you just have no idea where he's going. So you've literally had at this summit Rishi Sunak saying this will not destroy all jobs. Yeah. And then you have Elon Musk comes along and basically says this is going to destroy all jobs. And, you know, unless you really want to work. Um, and it was interesting to watch the, the, the kind of reaction from the Tory MPs was very negative to it. Yeah. But I thought in terms of the event as a whole, I thought it, it didn't harm it. Fiona's reading the Walter Isaacson book on Musk at the moment, and we were driving back from this book festival in Dorset, and so I was listening to it with her. And I, I hadn't quite realized just how fascinating Musk's whole backstory is, his childhood, his life. I mean, getting into this whole rocket business, age 30, he clearly has got something very, very special about him. But I think that in terms of... You'd said last week, and I hadn't quite realized the extent to which Joe Biden's executive order in terms of policy was probably a bigger thing than anything that came out of the mm. AI summit. But I thought it was a good thing to do. And I think the fact it's going to be every six months now shows that political leaders around and the world are on a, it. It's quite impressive. I mean, one of the nice things about the Mark Carney interview, which people should listen to on leading, is that he points out that we may have made more progress on climate and the environment than people acknowledge that he says that when Paris was signed... Uh, it was aiming at about three and a half degrees. Yeah. And now he thinks we may be getting down to two degrees. And that's interesting because generally speaking, Yuval Noah Harari, who we've also interviewed, tends to say, and I think it's true, that humans find it difficult to really make big policy decisions until the crisis is already there. In other words, we wouldn't really be able to tackle climate until the waves are literally lapping into our houses and we wouldn't deal with AI until the robots are walking down the streets. Mm -hmm. But actually, Biden, Sunak and others are demonstrating that they have been able to move more nimbly on AI than you would have expected. Well, I spoke last week at this thing called the, the Big Green Net Zero Festival. And because it was a kind of set piece, as it were, I did a lot of research. And there's some amazing stuff happening. And also on the figures. So, for example, Norway, which, let's remember, has made itself one of the richest countries in the world by being an oil country. Electric vehicle sales have reached 93% of total new car sales on the back of tax rebates, which are making electric vehicles cheaper than petrol and diesel. And the total cost of car ownership is now 20% cheaper than it was. One of Trump's capitals, Texas, Texas now has greater use of solar and wind than any other state in the United States. So there's all sorts of heat, heating heat pumps are now outselling gas boilers in the United States. And, and I found this analysis of Biden's Inflation Reduction Act by Credit Suisse of all people, who said it was the biggest single act of climate change legislation anywhere in the world. So there's a lot of stuff happening. I was, I, I was like you, I was, I, was, I was struck by how upbeat Carney seemed to be about the whole climate thing. And politically, by the way, 
back to the King's speech, I do think that Sunak has made a political mistake with his switch on the environment. And I think business is just moving on without that signal. And let's hope so. Although there's been some slightly worrying signals that Shell has been reversing and has lost a lot of its green staff who've been right. resigning because the chief executive seems to be giving up on quite a lot of their stuff. Right. So it, it, it remains quite fragile because there will still, unfortunately, be a lot of businesses out there who will see this stuff as extra cost and yeah. will be reluctant, which is why governments need to be very firm and need to have these clear dates, Yeah, um, which is why I agree with you about, about what Rishi Sunak did. Right. Time for the break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And we wanted to do a couple of things. One of them was to obviously talk again about what's happening in the Middle East and then move on to the Argentinian elections. One thing that you, you've been in touch with Humza Yusuf, the first leader in Scotland, whose family was, was in Gaza. And what, what did he say again? Well, just you no, know, because we've been trying to get him on the podcast and there was a plan for us to do it, when you were up in Scotland recently, but he got he got stranded by the weather, so I, I just sent him a you know a message, sort of saying hoped he was well and solidarity and all that because of the thing that was going on with his with his wife's family, and um, he was very 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 obviously relieved that they were out. But I think it's been interesting to watch his public pronouncements in relation to the issue of the ceasefire, very very you know, strongly out there. And I, th I think that I saw an interview with one of the United Nations people who I thought made a, th this is going to sound harsh, but it's not meant to be. He said he thought this debate here about the, the ceasefire was something of a red herring because it's not going to happen. There is not going to be a ceasefire because neither side at the moment are going to allow it to happen. So I think 
politicians outside, their role has to be what influence can they bring to bear to make the situation on the ground better. But, but I guess the question is, what direction are you hoping that those politicians are going to be exercising their influence insofar as they can at all? I mean, some, some people in the region would say, many Americans would say that the idea that, that Netanyahu is going to listen even to the United States is perhaps overrated. I think he'll listen to the United States. Will he listen that much to European leaders? And, and how much will he listen? Because I, I think there is there is a very interesting thing going on there, which is um, the, the arguments that we're making to the Israeli government for restraint are generally based on military logic. You're not going to be able to eliminate Hamas. I mean, I, I was reminded when we were in Afghanistan that I remember having a blazing row with someone in 2005, and I was saying, don't go into southern Afghanistan and start fighting the Taliban. And they said, no, there are only 2,500 Taliban fighters. I don't know how on earth they thought they could count the number. They're now saying there are 40,000 Hamas fighters. How do you count these numbers? Because these are secret organizations. Really, that's the claim. The coalition forces then went into southern Afghanistan and killed 20,000 people at least. And then the next thing we heard there were 30,000 Taliban fighters. Mm. So I, I think the military logic doesn't hold, but of course that isn't the only reason that it's happening. It is also true that, a bit like our debate about prison and criminal justice, there's an element of revenge and deterrence mm. in the Israeli calculus. Some people in, in the Israeli government will not say explicitly, but they will be thinking, we want to demonstrate that we will kill many more of them for every one of us that we kill. Mm -hmm. And we will do this again and again, and that this is our, our best um, defense. I mean, the health ministry uh, in Gaza says that the, the, the death toll is now into five figures, over, over 10,000, 10, yeah. and that 40% are children. And it was interesting to watch the Israeli communications people's response to that was essentially, you can't believe anything they say. This is the other point that Humza Yusuf made when I was in contact with him, is this deliberate conflation of every Palestinian, everybody in the, in the Gaza Strip with Hamas. Anybody who has stayed in the north means that they somehow are supporting Hamas. And every, I, I watched an interview with Mark Regev, who both you and I both know. Because he was the ambassador here. He was the ambassador yeah. here and a very smart guy very close to Netanyahu, by all accounts was a pretty effective ambassador and he's now been brought back essentially as to be one of the chief spokesmen in this pretty amazing communications machine where they, I mean, I noticed a guy uh, when I was up in Scotland recently, they had, there was somebody on for the IDF, he had a Scottish accent. Um, they, they, I saw a, uh, an IDF spokesman the other day speaking in utterly flawless German on a German TV channel. So, and, and Mark Regev is a very, technically, a very, very, very good communicator. He's also a very intelligent guy. But what I noticed about him yesterday was literally not giving an inch on any question. And it's an interesting question. I mean, I was listening to the Today program interviewing an IDF spokesman. And what was fascinating is just how aggressive the IDF spokesman was being and how much clearly their communications decision seems to be to go into full-on frontal attack, never give an inch, mm. be as absolutely aggressive towards the interviewer as you can possibly be. And I found it unsettling. I, I would have thought, particularly at the moment, that there would be space for a communication style, even if it's just a communication style, which at least 
recognised nuance, talked about the difficulty. I mean, if you think about the way in which um, spokesmen communicated in Afghanistan, Iraq or Kosovo about civilian casualties, the, the normal communication style was quite subdued. The military spokesman would say, of course, you know, it's very difficult. Tragedies can happen. We're fighting in a very difficult environment. No doubt people can be killed. You know, we're doing our very best. But that, that isn't the style no, at all. No, not at all. And, you know, there was a specific example on Channel 4 because um, they'd done an interview with a doctor in one of the hospitals who was talking about the impossibility of working because of lack of fuel, lack of this, lack of that. And it was very, very moving. And then Krishna Gurumurthy then interviews Mark Regev, who basically his line is, you can't believe anything that they say because they're all being directed by... Hamas. And then it gets into this argument with Krishna and Gurumurthy saying, well, no, you don't know that. Um, this is somebody that, you know, we go to great lengths, we speak to different voices. And Mark Regev then deliberately takes it down this line of anybody who is on the television from Gaza is basically scared by Hamas and therefore must be seen as a and voice well, of Hamas. Why do you think the decision has been made to communicate in that much more abrasive style? I think partly because that tends to be their, their modus operandi. But also I think they are feeling, um, and this is why I think they're so wound up about the, these huge marches that are taking place in uh, different parts of the world, including hugely in the United Kingdom. So I think they're feeling very, very pressured, very, very defensive, and they want to, for obvious kind of communications reasons, they want to take it back all the time to October the 7th. They started it. They don't particularly want, I think, to talk about the, the history. They don't particularly want to talk about some of the things that they've not been doing in the recent past. But it, you're right, it's a very, very um, aggressive form of communication. And, it, you know, you mentioned Kosovo there. I can remember during the Kosovo conflict and also in relation to Iraq, that pressure that you feel to explain how you are trying to avoid civilian casualties, they don't seem to feel that pressure. And I think what they are trying to do is basically essentially to say, if you're still there in the parts that we're bombing, then, you know, we gave you the chance to leave. And, and they are saying hospitals, schools, etc. Hamas used them to hide their fighters, therefore. And, and, and of course, as I think we've discussed a lot, and I think the, the interview which we did with Yuval Noah Harari on internal Israeli politics, a very good way of illustrating this, but it is far from the case that all Israeli political parties remotely agree about even fundamental things like the two-state solution. So Ben Gavir's party, which is a very important part of this coalition, simply rejects the two-state solution entirely. Mm -hmm. uh, Smotrich often also talks about having no interest in it at all. He simply wants everything that's currently called Palestine to be Israel. So we often, in the British context, imagine that there is absolute consensus. There are many people in Israel who are strongly in support of the two-state solution, but there are also people who simply don't want to use the word Palestine at all, don't want to recognize yeah. it at all, including the Minister of Heritage, um, the sort of Nadine Doris position, who's from Ben Gavir's party, who said that one of the options that they were considering was dropping a nuclear bomb on Gaza. Mm. Or sending them to Ireland was the other proposal. I think he did get, has he been suspended been by suspended, Netanyahu? Yeah, I think yeah, he has, yeah. yeah. I think the, the, the other thing that was on this Channel 4 News program I watched last night was... Uh, an interview of one of the that organization, the Sisters and Brothers of Israel, who said they were not going to serve because of the judicial reforms that we've talked about before. Basically, the guy was saying he doesn't trust Netanyahu, but he does trust the IDF. And I think that's where a lot of public opinion is now in Israel. 
not necessarily trusting that in the IU, but they do trust the IDF. But listen, it's, it, it's, you, you mentioned the point about the, the military logic. Netanyahu yesterday was saying that, you know, the expectation is that Israel will keep security control of Gaza at the end of whatever this phase is going to be and however, however long it's going to last. Um, but I don't have a clear sense of what the, the long-term military plan is. And it's not been explained. And these, you know, all, all I've been saying, and I think you agree with this, is that when you are conducting this kind of bombardment, it is incumbent, I think, upon those doing it to explain the logic at all times. And the logic isn't, you can't simply just go back to October the 7th and say, that is why we're doing all of this. You have to be able to, I think, give a deeper explanation. But they've decided in terms of their communication, it's going to be very black and white. It's going to be very hard, no shades of gray. And I think we're just going to have to, we're going to, have to get used to that. Very interesting. Also, we've talked a bit about UK domestic politics and the way that this is playing out. So two things. One of this is that support for Biden amongst Arab voters has dropped and Muslim voters in general has dropped dramatically. You see, I, I think people are focusing very much on, say, Muslims in the UK and mm. uh, Arab voters in, uh, in, yeah. in the United States. I think the other thing that's happening is that young people in general, perhaps not as well informed of the, the history. Mm. I saw a terrible thing in was the Observer at the weekend. Only 2% of British school children learn about the Middle East in history. 2%. And one of the reasons is that it's deemed to be too kind of controversial and sensitive and so forth. That's, that's terrible. That's got to be changed. So I, I, I think the, there, are, there are some terrifying polls out this week, if you're mm. like me mm. and like you, think that Trump is a sort of mm. real threat to the world. In five of the six most important swing states, Trump is now ahead of Biden. And Trump is now closing in on Biden amongst the black population. We, when you think that Trump spent yesterday being hauled up by a judge for behaving inappropriately in court in a massive fraud case, and yet every time these things happen, he seems to get more support or less. Absolutely unbelievable. And, and, and it also tells you a lot about British politics that, as we've pointed out, there's very little difference between Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak's public positions. But the latest Times poll found that only 27% of Labour voters think that Starmer's handled it well, whereas 72% of Tory voters think that Sunak's handled it well. Mm. And given they're saying the same thing, it, it tells you a lot about different composition of the parties. Of, of that divide, yeah. And I think if you, look, I haven't seen any demographic analysis of the people who've gone on marches, but I imagine that there won't be that many hardcore Tories who are going on those marches. There will be a lot of Labour supporters. You know, uh, and we've had the resignation of Burnley Council. Yeah, yeah, the council leader and ten councillors. Incidentally, do, do you have much to do with Burnley Council, or is it just football that draws you? I do know, I do know quite a lot of the Burnley <laughs> councillors. Yes, and I, and I know the excellent Labour candidate Oliver Ryan. Um, but there are some seats. There's another one, Leicester. Um, is you know, it's very, very tricky the politics there. I think for these Labour candidates who've been, you know, fighting on the cost of living, fighting on health service, and all this sort of stuff, where, where they feel very comfortable, now they're suddenly thrust into a very, very difficult political argument. And I do think that at the, at the, the outset, Labour should have perhaps had a bit more nuance and a bit more subtlety in the position, because it was pretty obvious to me where this was heading very, very quickly. And, and he, he got in trouble, didn't he? Just to remind, again, international listeners, he, he got in trouble because he appeared to be asked whether he defended cutting off of water and electricity. And it sounded like he thought that was fine. And it took him nearly five days to clarify and say... Mm. He didn't think that was fine. Yeah, because yeah. Why, this is why in these situations, every word. So he was asked whether he 
back that? And his answer was, Israel has the right to defend itself, which was taken as yes. But I I think that for for Labour, he can't can't back off the, the basic position now. But I think Labour as a more critical friend of the Israelis is, is a better place to be. Well, there we are. Now, this brings us to Argentina. Um, so Argentina had first election 22nd of, of October, mm-hmm. runoff 19th of November. And there were two previous presidents who could have run. Yeah, Alberto Fernandez, who was the guy that was in from 19 till, till now. And Cristina de Kirchner, who we'll talk a little bit more about, who was in from 2007 to 2015. So they didn't run. Instead of which, the final two are absolutely extraordinary. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the two two final well, candidates? Yeah. The, it is the most incredible runoff. So you've had their system is you, you have the presidential election. You have to get, I think it's 45%. And if you don't, then it goes up to a runoff of the first two. Um, Which is similar to the French presidential system. Similar, yeah, not yeah, identical, yeah, yeah, but yeah, similar. Yeah. And they also have, interestingly, compulsory voting from 18 to 70 and you can vote at 16 and 17, but it's not compulsory, which is quite interesting sort of, we should maybe think about that. So the two that have made it through, one of them is the economy minister who has presided over 140% inflation. So that is pretty amazing, that's Sergio Massa. Just on that, on your basis of a normal political analysis, an economy minister who's presided over 140% inflation. And 40% and, living in poverty. Yeah, and has seen the dollar go from 80 pesos <laughs> the dollar in April 2020 to 1,200 pesos the dollar today. So in just three years, unbelievable loss in the value of the currency. And nevertheless, did better in the first round of voting than his rival. Than Javier yeah. Millet. Uh, so Javier Millet, so that's uh, that's Sergio Massa, who's the leader of the Union of the Homeland, which you say And, and, and he's connected, Peronist and Kirchner. He's from that tradition. Although he's slightly distanced himself from that. And, he, and he's also in the past said that Christina should go to jail, uh, but he seems to be backing, <laughs> backing down from that now. And then Javier Millet is this guy who's constantly compared to Trump and Bolsonaro. He's a kind of economist, radical right, he picked a massive fight with the Pope uh, during the, the the campaign. He's he's he, he goes around with a chainsaw to sort of show that the whole system needs to be chopped down. So Massa ended up with over number one over thirty six percent, and Millet ended up on thirty percent, which is not much beyond what he got in the previous yeah. in the primaries, yeah. which is like a kind of dummy yeah. run. And the big loser was the the, the, the conservative Bullrich, and she only got I think twenty four percent. But but now her voters now are the key. So who are they going to go to? As well, the key? she's backing Millet. Whether all of her voters will is another matter. So she's ba- backing the Mister Wick. Um, she, she, she. The, the other the other thing to, to understand about Millet, which makes him really famous, is that he had a um, he had a mastiff dog, huge huge dog called Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. Obviously, in testimony to our previous Absolutely. interviewee yeah. on, on by the way, Javier, if you're listening, <laughs> yes, we would have you on. <laughs> Very happy to have you on. Um, and then he sent off um, some cells from Conan the Barbarian to Worcester, Massachusetts, to have it cloned. Mm. So he ends up with four identical mastiffs who are basically Conan the Barbarian reborn, who he's called after right-wing politicians, of which yeah. the one he refers to most is Milton, Milton Friedman. Mm-hmm. And frequently in his political speeches, he cites a conversation that he's had with Milton. So he will often say, I, I, you know, I've been thinking hard every night, but Milton advised me to... Milton the dog. Milton the dog. So the dog advised him. him. Yep. And he, he's quite happy to say this at the Senate and, and things, you know, I've been talking to Milton and Milton has said, really, this is where we should go. And his economic policies that he's pushing for include 
essentially getting rid of the Argentinian currency and replacing it with the dollar. The dollar yeah. and, and you can understand in a sense why. I mean, if you've gone from 80 pesos to dollar to 1,200 pesos dollar in just three years. Um, but of course, the problems with that are many. And, and one of them uh, people will remember from Greece's experience through the uh, financial crisis is that if you lose control of your currency and pin yourself to another country's currency, which is what you do with the dollar, you lose a huge amount of flexibility in being mm. able to drop your exchange rates to rebalance your exports. And Argentina went through this a little bit in the past. Um, anyway, let's just pause for a second. Maybe we could do a little bit of history of Argentina Peron, and how we got there. Peronism. Peronism. Um, yeah, go on. Tell us, but tell, us, well, tell us also about come on, well, the main facts about Argentina we know. And the thing for which you are most famous in Argentina is, of course, your amazing appearance with Diego Maradona. Oh, Rory, please. Honestly, we're <laughs> going to have to talk about playing with Diego Maradona again. I mean, okay, we should probably do a whole special episode. I'm on really that. sorry he's not around for us to interview know, and, and talk well, about. Apparently, his final words were yeah. once played with Alistair Campbell. And, and, and what he learnt from you. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. We should tell, say to our listeners that the producers are now headed hands, sick to death of hearing it. I never tire of talking about Diego Maradona, but I won't do it now. So, Peron, he's one of the. We talk about isms. You know, Thatcherism, Blairism, Sunakism, or whatever. But Peronism is one of the kind of defining political philosophies, certainly in terms of, of um, Argentina. So Juan Perón, who was um, part of the coup back in the day, and then president, then lost, then his party was banned. So, so present, present, late 1940s, early 1950s, yeah. yep. and with a wife called Ava. Here's a quiz question for you. How old was Ava Perón when she died? Gosh, I have no idea. 70? 33. No. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. Yeah. Uh, and she's probably now more famous than her husband, thanks to Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. Are you going to sing Don't Cry For Me, Argentina? Don't cry for me, Argentina. No. Um, <laughs> but, but he was like this incredibly charismatic leader. When you read his definition of his own political philosophy, it sounds very like New Labour. It's like, you know, economy, it's social programs, it's bit of patriotism without being kind of overtly nationalistic. But, 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 it, but it was incredible. I mean, it, it became it, very, very And we also dictatorial. forget, yeah, exactly how brutal it was. Yeah. And really, Perón invented or reinvented populism in, mm. in a way that dominated Latin American politics. Yeah. So he was all about the people against the elites. Yeah. And Argentina, j just to take it back a little bit, I mean, Argentina was this astonishing success story in the late 19th century. Unlike Brazil, Mexico, it was a country which really was dominated by European immigration, predominantly Italian immigration, uh, which rapidly overwhelmed the indigenous population so that it felt the late 19th century more like maybe Canada or Australia in mm. terms of the relationship between immigrants, European immigrants and the local population. Had this incredible economic boom late 19th century with the invention of refrigerated ships that allowed people to move Argentinian beef across mm. the world. GDP per capita in Argentina was higher than in the United States by the end of the 19th century. It was one of the seven largest economies in the world. It remained, by the time Peron took over, one of the 15 largest economies in the world. So this enormous giant. Mm -hmm. And really did feel as though this was an Australia or a Canada, yeah. this kind yeah. of country. Um, and of course, your, your friend Diego Maradona, as his name implies, part of that Italian yeah. immigration movement. Since 1946... The Peronist candidate has won 10 out of 13 elections in those which they've been allowed to stand. There was a period when they couldn't stand. They were banned. 
the, the one that we got to know quite well was Carlos Menem, who was also a Peronist, but he, he moved it to the right. Yes. Massa's moving it a little bit back to the, the centre-left. but they, So they fight under this umbrella of Peronism. And the, the, the thing that he's now emphasising in the runoff against Millet, he's going very heavy on family, religion, and la patria, the nation. And I think the reason for that is he's probably he's, he's working out that is why Millet seems to have got stuck at 30%. Is because you know, he did, let's say he picked a fight with the Pope. The Pope ended up calling him a Nazi. The Pope called him a Nazi and he called the Pope a filthy leftist. And I think to call the Pope a filthy leftist in any... If you're going to list the countries where the Pope is very, very popular... Argentina is going to be very high up there. Is he not an Argentinian pope? Well, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the, that's, that is the other reason. So I think that he's. it'll be fascinating to see what happens now because although Bullrich has sort of swung behind Millet, I don't think you can guarantee that all her voters will. Now, again, for, for, for listeners um, who aren't Latin American specialists... We, like we, us. We've talked exactly <laughs> like us, like, 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 like us. Um, one of the ways to think about what's happening in Latin America is that many of the countries followed... A, a pretty standard evolution. So Argentina, like many of the countries in Latin America, went from military rule in the late 70s, early 80s. So people in Britain will remember General Galtieri and the invasion of the Falkland Islands. Then went through huge debt crises in the 1980s. Mexico had this enormous debt crisis in 82, but it's true of Brazil, true of Argentina. And then in the 90s, they got these technocrats. So you were talking about Menem in Argentina, Cardoso in Brazil, Zedillo in Mexico. So in the 90s, they, they went much more sort of third way, neoliberal. And then in the early 2000s, they began to benefit from a massive commodity boom which also brought in more left-wing populist governments who benefited from the commodity boom, spent money like water, but increasingly got themselves caught up in corruption scandals. So in, in Brazil, famously the car wash scandal, which ended up with Lula, who's now back again, in jail. going to jail. I mean, he literally took a beachfront apartment from a businessman. But in Argentina, corruption is beyond everything. I mean, there's a you know, famous cliche about British politics that... You know, British politics is about class. All else is embellishment and detail. To some extent, you could say Argentinian politics recently has been about corruption mm. and all else is embellishment and detail. I mean, the corruption scandals are just beyond imagining. Mm. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases, billions of dollars of others. So Kirchner herself is caught up in incredible allegations about building enormous roads to nowhere in her own base, a constituency base in remote areas where the contractors kick backs the delays. I mean, if you think HS2 is bad, I mean, this stuff is beyond imagining. Presumably, this is why she didn't run in the end, is that she feared what would be well, coming in her way. Well, she, she was found guilty and, and sentenced to six years in December 22, yeah. and she's now appealing. There's also this great notebook scandal that caught her up where uh, one of the government car service drivers was keeping notebooks over a period of seven years just recording the cash coming in and out, the deals doing it. Well, but, recording it for his own benefit. In, in the notebooks, yeah. And people are a bit suspicious about what North he thought he was doing, keeping these notebooks going for 10 years and then handing them over. But absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> so it recorded, I think, $160 million in bribes. And 
So hold on, the driver's driving the car and, the, and, and, and Christina's in the back of the car doing these deals. Not Christina always. It's, it's, it's often different sorts different of ministers levels. connected to her. But mm. Jose Lopez, for example, was found stashing $9 million in cash and luxury watches in a convent. So he was the minister of, uh, I think, development. We thought God would be looking after it for him. Um, and a lot of the businesses have testified now in Argentina. I mean, Paolo Rocco, who's one of the most famous billionaires, just says, we just had to pay bribes. Mm. Kirchner's had eight and a half million dollars of her own cash frozen. Her daughter's had six and a half million dollars of her daughter's cash frozen. And again, one asks where exactly this money but comes this from. Is the, this is the other reason why it's pretty remarkable that Massa did as well as he did. Because if you're the finance minister <laughs> of the government that's presided over all this, then it's, I mean, I have no evidence to say yeah. one way or the other about him, but it's hard to sort of think that doesn't get counted against you as well. And yet he's got 36.6% of the, the vote. And, and, and part of the point is that in Argentina, and this is true in Brazil too, that the leftist populist politicians will suggest that these corruption charges are completely politically motivated. And it's definitely true in Argentina. Well, that's the, that's the game Trump is playing Absolutely. Now. The, yeah. the, the judge, exactly like Trump. But particularly in Argentina, the judges tend not to act until there's been an election. And then they turn against the government. Um, so there's a real problem with the judiciary because the judges can decide when to take a case, when not to take a case, and when to proceed. So anyway, really worth watching. Oh, no, it's going to be fascinating. It'll be absolutely fascinating. Um, and the other thing, whoever wins, I mean, we talk a lot about if Keir Starmer becomes prime minister, he's got a really difficult sort of, you know, set of circumstances to inherit. But Argentina, you're talking about, they're very close to hyperinflation. They've been in triple digit inflation now for quite some time. So I, I was talking to an Argentinian friend um, on Monday night for dinner who said the, the key thing to understand, uh, this may be, he may have been unfair to his own countrymen, but he said the key thing to understand is that Sergio Massa is very, very good looking. And that really matters in Argentinian politics. He is very good looking and he's very smart and he's a survivor. And the thing about being good looking, I don't know if I've told you this before, there was once a, a study in an American university they had a hundred pairs of two sets of pictures and the pictures were of two candidates in elections which had already happened. Okay. So the elections and they were council yeah, elections, yeah, senatorial yeah, yeah, elections. Yeah, yeah. They weren't kind of yeah, household yeah, figures. We're yeah, not talking yeah, to yeah, Trump yeah. Biden. And they presented these pictures to a very large sample of people and said, who do you think won based on the pictures? And they got like nine out of 10, right? And it's largely they just picked the better looking one. They picked the one that they thought looked well, I more like I was always very struck by this when I went with the Foreign Affairs Committee and Defence. It's probably why you lost to Boris Johnson. Really, so, isn't absolutely. Because he's but, such but a good looking guy. That's, that's what it you. was. Exactly. No, when I went with the Foreign Affairs Committee and Defence Committee to Washington, I was always very, very struck by the fact that we were all really small and weird looking. So me and my friend Frank Roy would go into the thing. <laughs> And every American senator we met was perfect well teeth, over six foot. Perfect perfect, yeah, teeth. looked amazing and kind of yeah. No, it was really. And in fact, actually, I thought the security guards in uh, in the Capitol found it very difficult to believe that we were members of Parliament. <laughs> well, there we are. We should keep a very very close eye on um, Massa and Millet. But it's going to be whoever's the last man standing has got big 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 challenges ahead. Great. See you next time at Question Time. See you next time for Question Time.